I've come into this from a technology neutral perspective. I am convinced, I am convinced that the, the wind and solar only is a non-starter. I am the, the rest of the mix. I am, I, I don't have a very strong view on how, but I don't disagree with you that nuclear will, should play a very important role and where possible hydro as well. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode uh, and previous episodes, I'm kind of uh, leading up to the Stand Up for Nuclear event that I'm going to be hosting or co-hosting in Ottawa September 25th on Parliament Hill. I've been discussing climate change and energy issues, and I'm excited on this podcast to have an economist on the program to investigate the market dynamics associated with energy transitions and providing some insights on what's needed to get us to net zero and the feasibility of the economic case uh, for transitioning. As always, if you enjoy listening to my program, please share it with your friends. I would love to hear from you. Uh, Join us at my Facebook group at The Rational View uh, discussion group on Facebook. And um, love to hear from you. Edgardo Sepulveda has been a telecommunications economist for 25 years, the last 15 with his consulting firm in Toronto, Canada. He was born in Chile and has an MA in economics. As part of his civic policy-related engagement, he also writes about electricity, inequality, COVID-19, and other issues, including at the Progressive Economics Forum, where he wrote the blog that we'll be discussing on this episode. Edgardo has been the guest on a number of other energy-related podcasts. In fact, uh, I first heard about him through the uh, Decouple podcast with uh, Chris Kiefer, a great, a great episode if you can go pick it up. His Twitter handle is at E underscore R underscore Sepulveda. Edgardo, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you very much, Al. Very happy to be here with you. I'm really happy to have you on. You know, you, you seem to be a numbers guy like me. I'm, I'm excited to, to get into some of the discussions that we're going to have here. Very much so, yep. Tell me a little bit about your history. Um, you came from Chile originally. How did you get here? Uh, that's going back a ways. But yeah, in the, in the 70s, uh, my, my parents immigrated. And so I went to, I went to high school here. Uh, in Toronto, uh, and did uh, all my uh, post-secondary education um, out here in BC, also in in, in Ontario, and then I straight out of school um, uh, started working for Bell Canada uh, okay. in their tele- in their economics department, uh, which is a great way to learn about the practical use of economics um, and to learn about regulated. Uh, capital-intensive industries such as telecommunications, but also, um, as it turns out, a very useful, u- useful way to learn about the electricity uh, sector and also the energy sector generally. So I've been an independent consultant for 25, 15 years, consultant generally for 25 years, and then I guess about five years ago, um, you know, those of us who who live in Ontario, Canada, will will recognize that there was a huge political outcry associated with increasing electricity prices. Mm-hmm. 
in Ontario, and people were asking me, uh, you're an economist, uh, what's all this about? <laughs> and I would kind of like <laughs> shrug my shoulders and say, not my field, not my sector. And then uh, I kind of decided that, you know, um, I should I should learn about it. And so I took it upon myself to start reading about it, start researching, and then ultimately start writing about it. And so about five years ago, I started blogging on on the electricity sector in Ontario from an economics and regulatory perspective, because I thought, uh, and I still think, that that is an area that is underrepresented in the, in the policy debate. Um, and so I went uh, to uh, the Ontario legislature to testify uh, on, on a number of issues uh, related to the Ontario uh, electricity sector. And then what I did, Al, uh, about f- two years ago, I, was, I started to think about what the electricity sector was and how it could help us with decarbonization. Um, with the climate crisis, okay. and so that's where that's sort of the genesis of this this article. It was again, it's a it's a real bit of a deep dive, wonky numbers oriented article that basically kind of it's not that it does its own modeling, but rather it's kind of like the IPCC in terms of you, you you basically summarize what you consider to be credible modeling, and kind of try to come to a consensus or understanding of a consensus. Of, of what the models are telling you and some of the societal and policy trade-offs involved with that modeling. Okay, so this is a, a blog. Uh, where can we find this blog if, if people want to read your, your work? Yeah, well, it's on the Progressive Economic Forum um, and it's called Electrification and Climate, Scale of the Challenge. Sure, so, so what's the Progressive Economics Forum? It's, it's a... It's a just what it sounds like. It was something established by a series of, of progressive economists, I guess about uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And it's it was a very active forum where a series of bloggers would uh, write down their research and, and engage in in the policy debate in Canada and specifically certain provinces uh, to try to put you know their uh, their views and research um, into the political fray and I've been blogging there for about five years it's just a series of people who are uh, publicly oriented economists progressives uh, in Canada who are writing about the issues that matter it sounds uh... Very interesting to me and also to the listeners here. Um, I've been, you know, looking for uh, economists. I don't have a lot of economist uh, contacts. And ever since I've written, I did the articles on universal basic income and uh, wage gap and all that sort of stuff, I've been looking for economists. So I'm going to have to have you back to talk about that. But today we want to talk a little bit about electrification and your your blog uh, is talking about that. And I think the work that you've been doing, I read it, it's, it's relatively important. And I think it needs to become, uh, needs to be more discussed at, at large, the, the sort of conclusions that you've reached and the, and the things that you found out just aren't visible, I think, in the discourse in the, in the, in society and need to be because it's, the clock is ticking on energy transitions. And, and we need to go into this transition with our eyes open and have a viable plan to handle it. And people just, are all still in buzzword mode in terms of um, 
the the election the fed, Canada is having a federal election now for those of you who don't know that we're we're having a federal election on September 20th and and of course the issues are who has the brighter smile and <laughs> it just kills me <laughs> we we just need yeah, to who's better on social media exactly <laughs> yeah who who has the better twitch or twitter or whatever uh, videos so you know, I don't want us to end up like Ontario as a country and the GEA wasting billions on the wrong solution. And so we need to think ahead and plan and we need to ask our representatives what they are going to do for us. Now, sure, pa uh, power is a provincial issue, but can, I, I think federally we, we need to have leadership at the federal level on where this should be going. So can you maybe briefly outline what you've learned in your research uh, and then we can we can start from there. Sure. Yeah. So, so uh, again, the, the background is uh, I'm coming at this from a regulatory policy perspective, uh, you know, um, increasingly more knowledgeable about the Ontario electricity sector. And so I wanted to branch out and I wanted to look at the, the, the manner in which the electricity sector and the role that the electricity sector can play uh, in 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 a decarbonization strategy in Canada and also globally as well. And so I didn't want to reinvent the wheel, but like like I like what you're saying, Al. I also believe that this is an area that that is is underappreciated. And so I wanted to learn about it myself. And the best way I find that I learn is actually doing the research and writing it up and making sure that when people say, "Oh, you're you're wrong, you missed that, etc." So it's it's a way of kind of peer review. Um, and so, um, and I wanted to, you know, and because this field is so large, Al, I wanted to focus on, on, um, on one particular aspect of decarbonization. Um, and, um, we all have heard, uh, I think most of us have heard the, that old saying, um, you know, kind of one of the best and surest way uh, for decarbonization or to achieve decarbonization is to clean the grid and electrify everything. Uh, you've probably heard that. And basically what that means is, um, you know, let's uh, use non-polluting, uh, non-emission uh, generation sources uh, and then in the grid, so clean it up and then electrify everything, which is to say, you know, uh, um, you know, residential uh, transportation, industrial processes that that are currently use fossil fuels for their energy needs is to use electricity instead. Um, but I think what's what people forgot in that in that saying is to grow the grid, right? So really, that saying should be clean and grow the grid and electrify everything. Because the underappreciated portion of this is that there's no free lunch. If we want to displace uh, fossil fuels and fossil infrastructure, we have to grow the grid. We have to grow the electricity sector in a way that is appears from today's perspective challenging, but historically we've done this before. So that's sort of, I came out of writing this piece uh, a bit more optimistic than I was prior. Okay, um, that's good. Yeah, because we can do this, right? Um, but so uh, the focus of the pieces is on the how much. Mm -hmm. There's a, a series of debates, Al, that we can also talk about. It's like who's going to do it, right? How is it going to be done? 
what the, the what of it that is to say should we be looking at the base load should we be looking at the intermittence should we be looking at nuclear and at what price i walked i started the blog with a bit of a thought experiment just to kind of make sure that people understand you know what the building blocks of these kinds of models are sure. so the thought experiment was in, internal combustion engines right mm -hmm. industrial combustion engine cars uh and what the classification the industrial classifications call light light duty vehicles right okay and so um they're about in canada uh they're about 24 million light duty vehicles um, and on average, uh, each is driven about 16,000 kilometers per year, per year, per year. And so in the technical, uh, uh, you know, transportation planning and all that kind of stuff, they refer to these as vehicle kilometers traveled VKTs, right? And so, uh, you multiply 24 million by 16,000, what you get is 384 billion VKTs, vehicle kilometers traveled, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we think of that uh, as the services, that is the number of people traveling per vehicle per kilometer per year, the vehicle services, the services that are provided to us right now by the gasoline and diesel infrastructure that drives those light vehicle, light duty vehicles. Okay. So the thought experiment is, all right, one day to the next, it's not going to happen one day to the next. What would happen if we said, okay, we're going to translate, we're going to displace each of those 384 billion VKTs uh, and turn them all into electric, uh, electric vehicles, 100% non-polluting electric vehicles. Right. So the feds so, have announced they're going to ban the sale of gas-powered cars by 2035. We're all right. going to be in EVs uh, right. in the next decade. That's right. But, but you know, instead of a, a transition, just as a thought experiment, we're going to do this one day to the next, right? We're going to, somebody, you know, a tooth fairy is going to go in and displace every single car and they're going to just put it into a ice car and put it into an EV, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But this gives you a sense of, the process that these modelers undertake to be able to kind of um, estimate these these parameters. So, um, using kind of current uh, estimates uh, of of you know uh, electric vehicle efficiency, the rough estimates that I get at is that the amount of electricity needed to power those 384 billion VKTs is about 73 terawatt hours. Okay. Now, okay. 73 terawatt hours is about a 10% increase from our current electricity generation in Canada. So right now right? we're generating something like 730 terawatt hours a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm rounding numbers, but I, you know, it's about 650, but I'm just rounding numbers just okay. to give you a sense, but it's actually closer to. That's not, that's not a big amount, right? It's not, a, that doesn't seem like a huge fraction, right? It's not going to kill. Right. The exactly. Grid. Now what you get for that. So just to give you a sense is you displace every single gasoline and diesel light vehicle, uh, car, uh, in, in Canada, you put it with an EV your your amount of electricity needed is 73 terawatts so that's about 11 percent increase what you get 
in return is that you get a reduction in emissions of about 83 megatons, which is about 12% reduction in Canada's national emissions, right? Okay. Um, and so there's your, there's your trade-off. You're ramping up electricity for a particular technology, displacement technology. You're lowering your emissions. You're obviously lowering your demand for gasoline and diesel. Um, and ultimately, what you're also doing, Al, is that you're lowering your total final energy because, as we know, ele like ele electric cars are much more efficient compared to ICE cars. So you're actual, in terms of joules used, you're actually reducing your joules uh, by about 10% um, as well. So kind of like if you think about it, a win, win, win. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. And so if you do this for every single sector, you can see how eventually you would decarbonize, right? If you did this, you took out every single, uh, for example, every single forced air gas um, furnace in Ontario, and mm -hmm. you did that, you know, you did the same for space heating in, in Alberta, and you did it for Saskatchewan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you did this sector by sector, you'd slowly be displacing changing the technology, displacing fossil fuels, and ramping up electricity use. And that's what these models do. What they do is they take baseline population and, and, and uh, uh, growth in GDP in, 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 in the economy, mm -hmm. they project it out, and then they figure out what is the electricity demand and what is, or, or what is the energy demand, and how do we actually meet that demand. Okay. Um, and so you do that you do that for every sector and ultimately you can well imagine that you know if just displacing the residential transport sector increases electricity use by you know whatever 11% 12% if you did that for residential heating if you did that for industrial purpose uh, processes if you did it for um, cement if you did it for other things you would easily ramp up and so what the models show on this table is that independent of the modelers and independent of their underlying assumptions with respect to which technologies would be used to meet that demand, what you get is this consensus that by 2050, we're going to have the electricity sector between double and triple the size that it is today. Okay. So if, if we're at about 650 terawatt hours right now in, in, in Canada, mm -hmm. you know, most of the models are in the 1600, 1700, some as high as 2100 terawatt hours. And so that's why I called the blog the scale of the challenge. <laughs> and that, that gets us to net zero or what does that get us to? That gets us to pretty close to net zero depending on the model. But yeah, okay. yeah, that gets us to, you know, 80% reduction, for example. There are going to be some sectors, as we know, that are going to be very difficult to electrify. And so you're going to have to use other approaches to get to that. Sure. But that's sort of more or less what I learned. And, you know, and that goes for all kinds of models. Basically, the models that were done were sponsored by... Um, Environment Canada, Environment and Climate Change Canada uh, in 2016, um, Trote models in 2017-18, the Jacobson models in, in 2017. Regardless of the technology, the underlying technology that you use, 
the ultimate consensus view amongst the models is that uh, if we are to decarbonize via the electrification pathways, we're going to need a lot more um, electricity. And I think many people don't recognize that. And certainly we're not meeting the challenge either from a policy perspective or a societal perspective, Al. And that's why I wrote this. And that's why you and I are in this advocacy space to try to get our point of view across that there is this urgency, but we're not meeting the challenge now. Certainly no one expects, like if you actually look at what the policymakers and regulatory authorities and actual power producers of today are talking about, we're not even close to these doubling or tripling of numbers. I think if you listen to a lot of the the discussion these days, it really is in a bit of a fantasy land where people just say, we're just going to cut back a little bit. We're maybe going to um, go vegetarian and um, you know not use plastic straws. And that should get us there. But that's really a fantasy because we need to double or triple the grid. And we're, we're going to be saving energy overall by doing this because, as you say, moving to electrification is much more efficient in terms of a use of energy at the end in a lot of cases. So we're actually going to be saving a significant fraction of our, of our, of our energy production by doing this. The other question that maybe I should ask at this point, just get your opinion on it. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people that have been thinking about um, green hydrogen and synth fuels mm -hmm, mm -hmm, as an option mm -hmm. to deep decarbonization, uh, which doesn't require so much changeover of infrastructure. Um, do you have an opinion on, on that pathway or how those pathways should balance? I, I haven't really studied that particular aspect, Al, but... You know, the hydrogen is going to also require uh, energy, right? It's going to require, and whether you use, you know, whatever underlying energy source you need to generate the the energy to you know to make that hydrogen, you know, uh, uh, work, is going to require a lot more. In fact, yes. um, a high hydrogen. If you again, these models that I'm presenting here. Are, are basically what I'm going to call kind of like the mid or median models, uh, either produced by the IPCC or the, you know, the NREL in the United States or, or you know, some of these private sector um, uh, research institutes. Um, each one of them has, you know, many, many variations, right? Thousands of variations. And one of them, the usually the highest one is the, the high hydrogen because it is a, a very energy intensive fuel yeah, source, yeah. right? Exactly. You're not going to have the efficiency that you do above. The, the electrification, I think, is the most efficient route overall in terms of energy usage, but it's um, the synth fuel one is the least intrusive in terms of infrastructure right. um, replacement, but it's it's yeah, energy yeah. it's much more energy intensive. So in both cases, we have this common thread of we need more clean energy, and that's right. The scale of it is at least twice, probably three times, uh, the electrical production we currently have, and that's I think the that's key take home message from this work is that we need to. Everyone should be talking about how are we going to do this. That's right. And the other thing that I do in the blog 
there's two other things that I do. One of them is to place it in, in historical perspective. And the other thing is to start talking about some of some of the things that will not work. Okay. The historical perspective is important. Um, I, I did a lot of economic history, and it's important to kind of be able to place ourselves and our challenges uh, beyond what is today, the presentism, <laughs> that we're all focused on, oh, no one has ever faced these kinds of challenges ever in history before, and we have to reinvent the wheel, right? And so the first thing to do is like, what have we done in the past, right? And so one of the things I did is I went back um, um, uh, in the grass, I went back to 1945. But the important thing to realize is this, is that the challenge of doubling or tripling the grid seems overwhelming in today's perspective, right? And the reason being is that for the time that most of us have been alive, electricity has been a pretty stable uh, commodity in most of the industrialized developed world, right? Um, it has been, it hasn't been growing a great deal. If you look at the the graphs on the um, uh, in the blog, you'll see, for example, that electricity over the last 35 to 40 years grew at sort of one percent a year, right? So mm -hmm. in 1987 we had about 490 terawatt hours, and now we have 650. So we basically increased our production by about five uh, terawatt hours per year. So, you know, for example, you know, uh, site C in, um, you know, site C in, in BC, five terawatt hours, right? Muskrat mm -hmm. Falls in, in, uh, in um, that's coming online now in Newfoundland. Um, you know, if we lose Pickering, right, that's, that's 23 terawatt hours, right? So that would be yeah, a net, net loss, right? Huge loss. But, you know, that is about a 1% increase. But if you look at what we did after Second World War in Canada, we increased the grid by 6% a year, right? And 6% a year basically means a doubling every 13 years, right? And, and if we want to double or triple our electricity to 2050, we only have to grow by 3.5%. Every so year. the growth every year. So the growth rates associated with the challenge of electrification, we've achieved those in the in not the distant past. We haven't come close to that in the last thirty or forty years. But after Second World War, we were growing at six percent a year over decades. Mm -hmm. And so the idea and if you go even before that, in the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, we were growing at 12 or 13%. We were doubling every every six or seven years. So so it's important to note that while conceptually, because we're not used to growing things anymore in Canada, in the West generally, things seem difficult. There's always opposition to something or another. It's difficult to build Site C. It's difficult to build SMRs. It's difficult to refurbish Pickering. Uh, there's opposition coming from people who don't want things built, right? Uh, and you have that, and and you see the actual numbers that we're not building out our infrastructure in the way we used to. It would seem difficult, but 
one of the things I wanted to come out of this is like, have we done this in the past? And the answer is yes. And we've done it double or triple what we're, what, what the challenge is for us. Okay. So that's one thing. So we've done it in the past, certainly from an economical and uh, a technical feasibility. The other aspect is um, to try to get into the politics of it, right? Or the ideology of it. Mm-hmm. You know, why is it? How is it that, you know, people don't want to um, increase the grid? As you say, you know, like there is a pathway, and I'm going to call it the degrowth pathway, which basically says, um, we don't need any more. Like, we shouldn't grow anymore, and our infrastructure, clean or otherwise, should stay as is. And we're going to try to meet our carbon decarbonization strategy via a, a, a degrowth or, or, or a stability process. That is to say, we've been good for, you know, 30 years at around six, you know, 500 or 650 terawatt hours. Mm-hmm. And for ideological reasons, for philosophical reasons, uh, people said, enough, no more, we're full, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm not of that. Uh, philosophy. I, I don't think you probably aren't as well. I, no, I'm a believer in in affordable, abundant, and reliable electricity and energy, you know, to promote human flourishing. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's not that's what you know you and I are discussing this. But that's not what everyone necessarily believes. And whether it's in good or bad faith, we have to be able to persuade people and tell people that if we're going to achieve decarbonization based on a growth model that is to say where the economy keeps growing and the population keeps growing this is likely the way to do it mm-hmm. you know you say that we've done this before but you look at the scale of, of it and yes it's you know it's maybe what three or four times what we're currently doing in terms of our increases but when you think about what you have to do to right. get that extra 20 terawatt hours a year, I mean, mm-hmm. that's like bringing on a Pickering every year. Yes, it is. Or it is twice yeah. our yeah. wind field. All those wind windmills in southern Ontario uh, produce about 11 terawatt hours a year. So, right. if you look at at that, where we, we want to add 20 terawatt hours a year for 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 15 years. Agreed. Yeah, it's 2025 year in year out, right? During during the late early 80s, we achieved that. We put in 25 like when for example when uh you know um the whole hydroelectric um uh system in Quebec was ramping up and or when when Darlington was was actually uh came online. Yeah, we were we were growing the grid in in Canada by 20 or 25 terawatt hours a year that happened four or five years and then we kind of hit this stability but it agreed there is there are very significant challenges al uh about who's going to do this right is it Mm -hmm. going to be able to be done you know via state-owned enterprises like like an ontario like a like a opg in canada or um um you know bc hydro or a hydro quebec are we going to be focused on the market-based systems like in Alberta? 
what other mechanisms are there um, to promote this through carbon taxes, mandates, a, a whole series of other issues related to if this is our goal, how do we achieve it? And is there even a consensus to achieve it? And I don't think there is. That's the other challenge. That's I don't think point. there's a consensus because, because there's a lot of people who would say, you know, I'm this uh, blog is about growth. It's about what is required in terms of the electricity center to continue our growth. There's a whole, as you and I know, Al, there's a whole uh, group of people out there who either in principle or in practice are against growth. Where mm -hmm. the first thing they say out of like how do how do we decarbonize? What's the first word? Efficiency, the or conservation, right? When anyone starts a discussion about decarbonization and it's all about efficiency and conservation, you know that they're not committed to the kind of pro-growth, um, abundant, reliable, and affordable electricity that's required to continue with human flourishing in, on our planet. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I want people to flourish. I don't think we need to try to increase our population any more than we have to. In fact, I'm, what you see is, is when you get flourishing populations, the population growth starts to decline, actually. And you find this exactly. around the world that, that people will, will have fewer kids if they feel um, more well off because they, I don't know what the psychology of it is, but there's, there's definitely uh, a change that happens when people feel uh, secure and the average number of kids goes below the replacement level and population growth starts to decrease. And I think that's the direction, that's certainly the direction I would like to see. Um, <laughs> I don't need. Yeah, well, I don't need an endless. I think an. I think we've we've got ourselves in a lot of trouble with focusing too much on economic growth, as a society. So, I think that's a, a discussion that has to happen um, politically as well. There's a there's definitely a lot of people on one side of the political spectrum that want to, as you say, degrowth completely. But we have to. I think outline what these positions really mean in a lot more detail and be clear about what we want because you know some people want us to degrow and, and not have power and go back to an agrarian lifestyle where we're basically all uh, growing our own food and <laughs> no longer you know having vehicles uh, and you know back to horse and buggy basically so basically you know, yeah. <laughs> There's a line yeah. here somewhere that, you know, what side <laughs> of this line do you do you fall on? Yeah, I, and, and I like and, having and a the car. gradation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the well, yeah, and the gradations of gray, right? I mean, there's yeah. there's there's the uninhabited, you know, uninhibited growth. There is moderation, and then there's degrowth, and and there's a huge amount of gray in between. The numbers here uh, I took from the Canadian Energy Regulator, and the numbers are: you get a GDP growth of about 1.8 year over year for 20, 30 years. You have a population growth of 0 0.8, right? So okay. that's a population is increasing just by a little less than 1%. And so therefore you have a GDP per capita growth rate. That is to say how much on average each person has in terms of GDP, in terms of the money mm -hmm. at about 1%, right? So these are moderate. I mean, these are not huge growth rates, but uh, you can reduce your emissions by electrifying your car and increasing the amount of electricity on the grid to be able to power that car 
or you can reduce your emissions from your gasoline car by going to the horse and buggy. and and you know in a nutshell you know those are the kind of like two extremes that that are vying for policy and cultural and societal primacy right so to get to the goals that most people are discussing the net zero uh, by 2050 to, to 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 hit these targets these are the numbers that we need to be talking about. And we need to get these out into the public and get them into the political sphere and get people acclimatized to them and figure out the plans to get them. Because what What's the impact going to be on regular consumers over... So you've got a, you know, a, a, a few decades, basically. Right. And you're going to be... Um, we're going to be building more electrical infrastructure and you're going to be mm-hmm. changing your car over to an electric car and you're going to right. be getting rid of your furnace, your gas furnace, uh, yep. your your gas water heater. You know yep. what? What are their impact? Like the EV is ten percent or twelve percent of, right. of the of the carbon. How do we get to eighty percent? What are all, what are all the impacts on people? You know, again, this goes to how realistically and how much do we want to change consumer behavior to what is acceptable politically, right? Because if we're going to say to people, Al. Oh, sorry, we're going to take away your car and you have to drive a horse and buggy, right? Like, you are not going to make it in the political world. You will not get elected. It will not happen, right? And if you do, you'll get booted out the next election, right? I think that's a, so, it's an important point. You have to you have to follow what people are willing to do. And, and it's not going to be a huge change in people's consumption behavior unless, you know, things get a lot worse a lot faster. Well, that's exactly it, right? And we've seen that consumer behavior um, over the last 30 years, you know, very little has changed, right? We're still emitting a lot um, as individuals, as a country, as provinces. And so the idea of what is palatable in terms of a policy debate um, versus what's doable and what's sustainable are two, diff- two very different things. Like, for example, I mean, you know, again, going back to the car, the political promises are that, you know, no new cars will be sold that are not EV, right? But that doesn't talk about the whole fleet of existing cars, right? And certainly that doesn't talk about, you know, the mandates of putting these out. Like, the, do you say to people, actually, you not only have to, you can't buy a new car, you have to give up your old car, right? Uh, there's the whole process of of infrastructure um, to to be able to power those cars. I mean, we're talking about you know the plug-in charges, et cetera, at home, right? Mm-hmm. Those are costs. Um, we haven't talked about what would happen to the workers that are right now uh, working in the oil fields or the oil sands or um, in the refineries for the equivalent of all that oil that gets transferred into that gets transformed into gasoline and diesel and that are going to be out of work right so Mm -hmm. that's you know we have to think about those workers and those companies um that are going to be basically displaced plus all the people who are actually making right now uh internal combustion engine cars right and so there's there's serious societal 
questions that are arising, and this is in a small scale. This is 10% of the transformation. We're not even getting to the 80% of transformation, right? Because there's you and I, and we're going to have to buy a new car. It's going to be electric. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are involved in the processes to be able to, for example, you know, how many people are employed in Canada in gas stations right now? Probably tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Those are all going to be without a job. Right. And so we have to manage that transition. So as per most policy changes, there's going to be net benefits. Most of us are going to benefit because, you know, electric cars have a longer life. They're more efficient. Um, uh, and our net costs prices could potentially go down if electricity prices remain low. Right. And this is a key issue. Right. We actually could be saving money. Um, if we manage this transition where we have abundant, reliable, and affordable electricity. In Ontario yes. right now, that's not the case. There's a very disincentive to buy an EV because electricity prices are so darn high, right? There's a disincentive, and I was, I was interviewed a couple of months ago on this, there's a disincentive to use an electric heat pump or trans or, or do... Uh, heat your home with electricity, non-polluting, rather than gas, because gas is so cheap and electricity is so expensive. So there's no the incentive. That's right. So there's no incentive to do this. That's why you need electricity to be cheap so that people are incented to actually uh, uh, buy their own uh, in their next big purchase, think about um uh, you know, going th for an electrically driven technology. And the other thing that I'm always very concerned about is that the equity aspect of it. Right now, we know that solar panels in Canada, as it is in most of the world, are predominantly used by uh, the top quintile income shares. And the prices, and, and they are subsidized in effect by the rest of the rate payers um, and so what you have is this reverse robin hood where you know um, all rate payers are subsidizing a very expensive technology that is predominantly used by high income um, uh, households is that is that subsidization through incentives that's right, through the FIT, for example, right? Yeah. The FIT is the, 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 the feed-in tariff that was used in Ontario to promote uh, solar and wind, as it has been in Germany, as it has been in California. The studies are numerous to show that it's predominantly high-income households who have the capital and the actual building to be able to put up a solar panel, who mm -hmm. are subsidized through uh, above-cost pricing when they put that electricity into the grid and the subsidy comes from other other ratepayers or in the case in Ontario other ratepayers and other taxpayers so again you have this you have this process where the transition doesn't look very good right now it is not happening and where it is happening it's 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 it drives inequality right it also has all kinds of other bad effects in terms of that you know no one wants anything done anywhere Right, as Ted Nordhaus was talking about that, it everything has moved from NIMBYism, not in my backyard, to mm -hmm. uh, not in anyone's backyard. Right, that we don't want built anything anywhere. 
right? Because we, we, we don't believe in the pathway that we can grow our way out of the decarbonization process. The only pathway that many uh, uh, the other group says is that we can only degrowth out of a pathway. Well, I mean, and that, that's a rational position, though. If, if you look at people in Ontario, tax ratepayers in Ontario, uh, the power file has been so bungled in Ontario that, you know, people say, okay, well, we've, we've added all these windmills and all these solar panels and the price has gone through the roof. And we know that nuclear is more expensive because people keep telling us that. Right. So there's no way to do this, right? Most rational people are sitting at home saying we cannot increase electricity because it's going to drive our bills through the roof. Because obviously, if solar and wind, the, sh the cheapest things in the market have driven our bills up so much, and there's no way we're going to pay for nuclear. So, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is yep. why public no, is against it, right? Yep. Yeah. Among other things. Yeah. Yeah. I agreed. They don't believe that this is the way to do it. But but the other thing is, is that the alternative is, I, I don't think they're aware, most people are aware of what is the alternative to going to a horse and buggy. Right? <laughs> I mean, again, I'm exaggerating for, for a fact, right? But the horse and buggy is, is, is the alternative. And so um, anyway, that's why I put it put this up. I think these are important issues. It is, it is, um, and this is certainly before I started getting more and more involved in the technology side. And, you know, this is a very, this blog is very tech neutral, right? I, I, I talk about it. There is one other thing um, that is also very important and kind of gets at, uh, Al, the, 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 the kind of like conundrum and policy debate. So one of the things that one of the things that people who are, you know, 100% renewable oriented, one of the things they talk about that are very pro is is solar solar panels, um, you know, because it's, it's, it's distributed, it's not centralized, it's owned. Um, and so I did another thought experiment that I include in the in the blog. And um, I took I took every single residential rooftop in Canada, including apartments. And you said, how much would we be able to generate if every single residential rooftop in Canada had an average sized solar panel array? Okay. Right? My own calculations came up with about a, a, a hundred terawatt hours. The calculations by, by Jacobson are about 125. So anyway, it's about 100 to 125, given current technology right now in Canada. So if you are of the view that we don't need to grow the grid, that we don't want Site C, we don't musk our flats, you can, you can do away with Pickering. And we can make it all up by solar panels. Right now, you and I know Al that there's serious engineering issues with that, in, in terms of firming it up, et cetera, et cetera, storage. But Cost. I wanted to do this as an experiment, right? Um, and it's costly, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and it would probably increase uh, inequality even further. But I wanted to do an experiment. So, so y you know, if you don't believe that we need to grow by double or triple, but that we can conserve our way out of this, we can degrow our way to towards decarbonization. You could have a legitimate policy discussion that, uh, you know, that all you would ever need, you could just do it by solar panels. 
and you could add a hundred, you know, a hundred terawatt hours of capacity. You'd have to back it up, et cetera, et cetera, with car, with you know, gas and stuff, or some other technology that yet to be invented. But you could do it. But that's a hundred. Hundred terawatts. A hundred terawatts. Terawatt hours. But we're talking about that you would need to increase the grid from the current 650 to about 1700 or 1800, even 2000. You're talking about another 1000 to uh, 1200 terawatt hours. So if you think that the grid shouldn't grow, and this is a shouldn't, it's not a will not or you know, it's you don't believe it should grow or it should grow very, very moderately or in the same way that it has been growing for the last 20 or 30 years, because mm -hmm. this is the way that we should decarbonize. If you believe that, right, then you could achieve all your growth objectives purely by solar power in every residential rooftop, right? And obviously there are issues associated with that, but you could do it, right? You don't need any other mega projects. You don't need more centralized um, electricity. You don't need any electricity company, whether OPG, Hydro-Quebec, you don't need it. You could do it yourself. You could just do it yourself and you could just have incentives. But that 100 would be about 8% of what we actually need. So that would necessarily mean that we need to do something else at scale, whether it's a wind farm or a solar farm or a hydro or, electric or, or nuclear. So, so the idea that you could meet our future needs by re, by distributed only is a falsehood if you believe that we need to grow to double or triple what we are now. Right. So, it so what, the, legitimate... what this says is that the degrowth pathway, if we if we're just going to throw in renewables on every rooftop, um, right? Basically. We're only we're going to have to decrease our overall power usage as a society by about seventy uh, percent. Right, seventy percent, seven zero. So yeah. basically, yeah. we're stopping all industrial production, right? Yeah, I, I don't know how it actually work out that way, but in the <laughs> I mean, it's not that it would happen now. It would that it would be, and I'm not saying that these you know that people necessarily say oh we're going to tear everything else up but it just wouldn't be replaced and yes it could decrease by that much especially in the future especially with our with our economy and and even with stable or even very modest population growth so yeah that's essentially what, i mean you turn back to the horse and buggy yeah. right yeah i mean the, the the power use that you need to to degrow at, at that level is, is you know you're you're back to the renaissance uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I I don't want to go back to the land. <laughs> I don't. Want, I don't want to, have to till my own. You know, food. Um, you know, the, those are those are significant societal changes. So to do this, though, we need to take we need to tackle this issue of growing the grid then by 200, 300%, as as you say, and we need to find a way to do it economically. What is, and and. You know, I can't see us. If you if you look at the magnitude of, say, Ontario's GEA and the the wind farms, you know, they brought on over I don't know how long it's been that they've been building these windmills, eleven terawatt hours. Right. This entire thing that's blown our electricity bills through the roof is eleven mm -hmm. terawatt hours of windmills. That's it. That's that's not one year's worth of what we need. Um, no. 
the only way we can do this economically is nuclear. In my opinion, you know, we need to say we need to build the uh, the other half of Darlington. We need to keep Pickering online, and we need to either get the SMRs going really fast, or we need to build more. Yeah, look, I mean, like I said, I, I'm I'm not a uh, I've come into this from a technology neutral perspective. I am convinced. I am convinced that the the wind and solar only is a non-starter. I am the the rest of the mix. I am I, I don't have a very strong view on Al, but I don't disagree with you that nuclear will should play a very important role, and where possible hydro as well. I mean, I know we've tapped out most of hydro, and, and there is a series of of land and siting issues that we have to be very careful about. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't or couldn't grow baseload electricity. And I think that's important. I mean, if, if some fantastic technology were to come up tomorrow and would be cheap and affordable and have a, a low uh, environmental impact, um, that'd be great. That'd be a great technology. But right now, you know, where that comes from in terms of the lowest um, ecological footprint, it's, uh, it's nuclear. And so, yeah, I know a lot of my colleagues on this are very, very much pro-nuclear advocates. Um, I look at the numbers, and the numbers have successfully shown we know that nuclear is 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 low priced in Ontario. It is much lower priced than solar, and much lower priced than wind. Yeah, the money is is where your mouth is. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this has been a, a great discussion, uh, Edgardo. Uh, we're reaching the end of our, our time slot here. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, the back and forth and, and understanding your work. Uh, it's great work, and it needs to be talked about more. Um, we'll put a link to your blog in the, in the show notes. Um, really great to have you on the program, and I'm hoping I can have you back again uh, as you continue your research. Uh, and also, I want to talk about a lot of other things too, like universal basic income and some oh. of these. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, I, I've got a, I've got a bunch of. Um, I mean, you check out the blog. I, I, I have. Um, you know, I focused uh, my non-professional writing and research on three or four things. One of them is electricity. Um, I, I probably spent about a thousand hours even before I put pen to paper, just researching cause I want to be, uh, I want to wow. be, you know, I want to get it right. Uh, and I want to contribute, uh, rather than just opine. <laughs> right. And so the other one is the other things that I focus on is inequality. And I know that's something that you've raised in your, in your um, in your uh, podcast before um, inequality and and distribution and redistribution and the other one is uh, I've been writing a fair bit on on COVID as well recently um, and and sort of the drivers of COVID across uh, nationally so uh, those are all issues that I'd be very happy to be on your show again thanks again for the invite I've really enjoyed this all right well thank you so much Edgardo we'll, we'll talk to you again sometime soon I hope. Great. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com/slash/the-rational-view.